Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. This podcast is sponsored by Kaplan Professional, the leading provider of online education for Australia's finance industry. Studying my Master of Applied Finance with Kaplan Professional provided me with the flexibility and support to deepen my specialist knowledge while balancing my professional commitments. If you're planning to sit the CFA exam, Kaplan Professional is also renowned for the most respected preparation materials in the industry. Visit kaplanprofessional.edu.au to learn more. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Charlie Aiken, the founder of Aiken Investment Management, is my guest in this episode. Charlie was Australia's most widely known stockbroker before he started his own investment management company. Charlie's career started on the floors of the Sydney Futures Exchange, picking up trade slips from experienced brokers. 
Eventually, he moved into a role where he would provide colourful market updates, which were read by investors around the world. In this episode, Charlie tells us why his mum was the investor in the family, why he backed one of Australia's top performing companies over the past 20 years, and how and why he buys the best companies from Australia, Asia, and beyond. Please enjoy this episode with Charlie Aiken. All right. Thanks for joining me on the show, Charlie. Thanks, Owen. Good to see you. The way we start with the show is um, we provide a bit of history on you and, and your journey and how you came to be in the position that you're in. Uh, there's a lot to get through. Very exciting past and hopefully future. Um, so first of all, it seems investing was in your DNA from a very young age. Yeah, I think it's a little bit like being a doctor's son, Owen. You know, my father was the chief executive of Perpetual and started the Perpetual Industrial Share Fund. So from a very early age, shares were in our family. And I remember, you know, trips Dad used to take us on Sunday to get us out of the house to go and look at, you know, chip pallet pools and other things. And, yeah, great. And we, we understood equities early on. But, yeah, it's like being a doctor's son. Uh, so what was it, was it your father in particular that drove your curiosity for finance? Or, you know, was it in... Well, I think... There was not much else talked about in our household yeah. outside, of, outside of finance and golf. And you know, and funny thing was, uh, even though she passed away a few years ago, Mum was the best investor. All oh, right, there. okay. Mum, was, Mum had a, just a wonderful portfolio where she just bought the best stocks and she never sold them. Yeah, the and there's actually something to be said about that. Mm. So look, it was, you know, while it was the while it was Dad's work, we were all interested, and Mum was an investor. And you know, I think there was probably nothing else I knew about. And, and look, I always found it exciting and I found it dynamic and I still find it like that today. And we have touched on it. Your father was an investor and your brothers, I believe, are in finance or investing? Yes. No, my older brother has his own macroeconomic advisory business out of London and my younger oh, brother's wow. a stockbroker. So, yeah, everyone's involved in yeah. one way or another. So family barbecues, finance is the topic. Horribly boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. It's like, you know, stock picks and things like that. But look... You know, I, th- I quite enjoy that. We all do different things. I'm a fund manager. My younger brother's a stockbroker. My older brother's a world expert on macroeconomics, and he's the smart one. Mm. And so, look, it's, it, we're, in, we're all in finance to agree or markets to agree, but different parts of it. Yeah, great. So no tips floated back and forth between you? Only cheap shots about the, our worst ideas. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You know how it works between yeah. three brothers. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so after high school, you did you move on to study... At uni? Well, let's put it this way, Owen. I was enrolled in economics at Sydney University. I think I played rugby and golf most of the time. (laughs) I think my father found out that I was playing golf most days at the golf club against his friends and winning Ah, money and decided that it was time for me to actually have a job because I wasn't really attending university. And that was actually probably the turning point of the start of the turning point of my whole career. Mm. Did you finish? Nope. No? No. I was, uh, dad called in a favour, no doubt, with a guy called Eric Gale, who was a stockbroker at Ordnance, and said, Is there anything you can do with Charlie? Mm hmm. And they, they found me a job picking up receipts on the Sydney Futures Exchange floor. And that was my first job, just picking up the receipts from the traders. But in, in my way of thinking, it, was, it taught me more about economic supply, demand and markets than any economics degree would have because it was physical experience. So mm. that, that was the turning point. And I loved it. Those, the, the Futures floor, where it was all coloured jackets and screaming and shouting at each other, was fantastic. Yeah, it was a imagine. bit of a boys' club, but yeah. it was it was really the place to learn markets. Yeah, and I was lucky to get that break. I can imagine every day you'd be waking up excited to go in and and to see what what happens. I remember practicing hand signals on the bus on the way home. <laughs> you know, like okay. you know, hand is towards you to buy, hand is away from you to sell. Volume at price. I mean, it's not great on a podcast, but <laughs> it's, as, as I'm demonstrating, I still remember. But that was fantastic. You know, it it really was. Yeah, great. Um, so, how long did you last in the job? And that job, probably about three years. I started when I was, I think, 19 or 20. And then one of my clients said, would you like to be an institutional stockbroker? And I said, I don't know what that is. So I went and asked Dad. And he said, oh, look, that's 
a lot more diverse than trading the spy for a you know one a one commodity thing because mm-hmm. you'll probably enjoy it and you know what I could be your first client. I said, "How's oh okay?" Because yeah, Dad was working for the Fairfax family family office and he actually did give me his first order. And I can still remember it. My first order as an institutional broker was to buy three hundred thousand Mount Isa mine shares, MIMS, hmm. which don't exist anymore. They were taken over, but that was a that was a good start. And Dad gave me that order. Oh, great. It was, Probably wouldn't happen nowadays, but yeah, in no, the world, no, of compli- world of compliance, but Dad gave me my first order, and I actually remember it very clearly. One of the things that you're particularly well known for is your commentary and the notes to clients. How did that come to be? Well, that was interesting. As When I started in broking, we, I worked at County NatWest, and they had a very strong London team, London uh, sales desk. Mm-hmm. And I started writing a, just a little short note to them about each day about what happened in Australia, what we did, you know, what trades we did, et cetera, et cetera, for clients. It just sort of went for there. They started sending that note to some of their clients and then it just became a daily thing and daily thing and daily thing and then just ended up, I wrote, you know, went to, eventually I left County NatWest or Citigroup and we went to Southern Cross and I wrote a note called Under the Southern Cross and then mm. when Southern Cross were bought by Bell Potter, we changed it to Ringing the Bell. But that became my identity, that, that note. And it started from a very small thing, just writing a little daily summary to some, uh, some stockbrokers in London. Mm. But, but I really thoroughly enjoyed it in the end you know, it became a huge burden, but it was still very enjoyable. Yeah, you I know. can imagine content every day. Like every yeah. day, it's like being a journalist, but you mm. know, like, but you actually realise that less was more, that you probably were better off writing good ideas rather than stuff every mm. day. Yeah, quality over quantity. Eventually, yeah. yeah. Uh, in a previous interview you did with um, James Marley from Livewire, uh, you talked about the three rules, uh, or your three rules for producing really compelling content, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on them. You said, you need to make your audience laugh, you need to make them think, and you need to make them money. I find with using my sense of humour, it can be binary. <laughs> Good or bad, uh, they either love, love it or hate it. Can you share some thoughts on what was driving your personal brain during that time? Yeah, well, I think when people got that email from me, they were unequivocal that it was written by me. Hmm. And it was probably back in the days, there was a little less compliance, a little less thought police out there, and you could write, <laughs> write your own way. You know, not in, in a, in a, still a compliant way, but it had personality. Hmm. And I wanted people, when they read that email, I, I believed I had three minutes of their day, three minutes of their time. That's all you got mm. on an email or any communication, except for obviously a high quality podcast like this. Yeah, absolutely. Hours. <laughs> put people to sleep. <laughs> but to me, it had to have personality. So make them laugh, make them think, make them money was my motto. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, you had to have humility. But you, at the end of the day, you had to be slightly more right than wrong, but people would forgive you if you had humility, mm. you know, that you admit you were wrong. The one thing you could never go involved in, or I regret I ever took sides on this occasionally, was politics. Um, if you ever took sides on politics and the effect on the market, it was, as you would say, a binary outcome. Mm. People who voted for one side just had, had their views. and You just never wanted to get involved in that. And that was one thing I learned. So eventually I just, you know, kept it to market commentary. But you could always have some jokes. And I think that's missing in in, mm. in finance at the moment. You're allowed to have humour. So you think that there's still a place for it? I think there's absolutely a place for it. I think there's a place for bolder personalities. I think there's a place for having a view. Mm. Having a view. I mean, that's what this is about. It, it, investing and commentating and finance is about having a view on the future. Mm. And you have to have a view. Now, whether that's a bold view or a non-consensus view, they're the ones that generally make you money. Mm. So I'm not not scared to have a, a, a view. And I think that the world has gone too far towards having no view. Mm. We live in this little consensus world where no, everyone's too scared to say something. Well, the way you make money in life in markets is to have a view and stick, and stick with that view. Yeah. Uh, in terms of making people money, um, 
one of the things that you backed from a very from very early on was Fortescue, um, and many people may remember this, but uh, it's you know Fortescue is probably one of the, the greatest success stories of the past twenty years. Um, how did that come to be? How did that particular investment idea come to be? And potentially, what were some of the lessons that you learned? Well, that was an interesting one because. Uh, Early on, I was um, writing positively about what I thought was going to be a resource super cycle. You know, we started buying BHP shares and Rio shares, and something had changed. China had come into the equation, and there'd been just this huge step change up in price of all commodities. Something big was happening, and it was actually the emergence of China. Mm. I got this phone call about three or four times from a guy called Andrew Forrest. Mm. And I didn't really know much about Andrew. I knew something had happened with, you know, what was it, Manara, or, uh, no, not Manara, um, you know, his previous life didn't go so well. And he was relentless. He said, you need to come over and see what I'm building in Western Australia. I said, Andrew, I haven't got time to come and see this. And at that time, you know, most of the East Coast people thought it was a joke that you were taking on BHP and Rio and it never worked. So mm. one stage I gave in to Andrew. I said, right, I'll come over in Easter 2006, I think it was. And much to my wife's annoyance, we went over to Pilbara at Easter and it's hot and dusty and full of flies. But what I saw there was this thing that people didn't think existed was well advanced. It had train lines and open-cut mines, and it was going to dig iron ore of some grade out of the ground, and it existed. And from that point, I thought the risk-reward of backing him was pretty low. Most people didn't think it would ever work. Most people, BHP and Rio were canning it every day because it didn't suit them. I think the Rio chief executive called it a bag of rusty nails. That's how bad the iron ore was. Of course. And I thought it was a chance also to back something entrepreneurial. You know, Australia, you know, I mean, the good thing about Fortescue now it is, you know, it's the only top 20 stock that's been created from nothing in the last 15 years. Mm. And that's, you know, something we'd be proud of. Now, it's been volatile and it, and, it's, and it is a commodity stock and it's a low-grade commodity producer and it will continue to be volatile. But to watch Andrew and Nicola give money back to people in the nation, I just think it's great. Mm. I'm just happy to have been involved in that. And But what, what drove me to it was that this guy just had so much passion. He was not going to give in. He was going to scrape and fight and find finance and do that, and he did it, mm. you know. And it was, doing it. I actually think I probably backed him more than the asset, Okay. just thinking that he had real determination. And there were other people out there, and it reminds me of how we run the money here. You know, yes, we have some big cap investments around the world, but if you see someone with passion and drive, you know, that energy is rare. Mm. And there's plenty of people who sit there running banks in Australia getting paid five million bucks who do not have the energy that Andrew <laughs> Forrest had. And that's why he's a very wealthy man now. Absolutely. But, but energy, energy and drive is something that you, you, you don't see that often and, you, and it's really worth backing. Yeah, great. Um, I'd like to shift focus now from share broking to starting your own business. Um, as a fund manager and I suppose I, I, I want to dig into the differences and how maybe your investment philosophy has evolved over time um, with that transition. Well, it's totally different. I mean, stockbroking is transaction-driven. Mm. You know, to, to make money, you need your clients to transact, but you also need to make the money. So it's turnover-based. Yep. That, that's never changed. You need also good floats. So there's also, from all the you know, 15, 20 years of writing notes, there's no track record of exactly how I went. Mm. People remember Fortescue and BHP and Telstra, and things like that, and there was a mm. few good ones I was involved in. But there's also some shockers. Mm. <laughs> you know, we all have them. Oh, there's, yeah. there's plenty of shockers where you just had a bad idea and it didn't work. So there's no track record for all your effort other than hopefully the record shows you did a bit, you had a few more winners than losers. Mm. And I think hopefully it does. In, in running people's money, it is a completely different responsibility. You have to A, beat the benchmark, B, A, not lose people's money, B, beat the benchmark, and C, continually be marked on a daily, weekly, monthly, 
yearly basis. Mm. There is one thing you can't hide, and that's the performance. Mm. And so it is quite, it's totally different. And, you know, it's taken me a while to understand, you know, or get more comfortable with the performance game and just running a long-term portfolio. And the hardest thing is when you're from a transaction-based business, not transacting as much. Mm. You know, just some days, the best days we have in the fund, we do nothing. Mm. You just sit there, you know, come down, research a few things, you know, you, you Probably, you may be better playing golf. <laughs> Stick it, stay away from it. That's probably how you make money yeah. if you've got the right portfolio. So it's a totally different business. Okay. Um, that's very interesting. Um, I think it was, like I said earlier on, it's almost in your DNA investing, but with your family history in funds management, um, I can see why the, the funds management was the end game for you. I'm interested to know how you think your personal brand and how you developed that as a stockbroker provided a platform for you to launch the business and potentially give you an advantage over some of your well, competitors. There was two reasons for launching the business. Firstly, there was a couple of clients, of individual private investors, who said to me, if you ever wanted to look after money, we'd give you some. Okay. You know, so that was a good start. So I knew there was a few people who'd give me money to have a, have a go. The other thing I'd seen recently is that the greatest success in Australian funds management in the last 10 years is a guy called Hamish Douglas at Magellan. Mm. Hamish was an investment banker with Chris Mackay. You know, a lot of people rubbished them. You know, mm. the, the industry itself rubbished them, said they'll never get any money. And their first few years were tough. Now they have a $65 billion empire and they've done really well. So that said to me that you didn't have to be a fund manager to be a fund manager. You had to have infrastructure around you, but you also had to sell the product. And mm. Hamish is a wonderful salesman. And he sells the product really well and he sold the product better than anyone because he's from a selling background. Mm. So for me, you know, funds management is two, twofold. We've got to run a great portfolio, but we've got to sell the product. You know? And my skill is you know, probably more in selling the product, was more in selling the product, but it's a balance in it. So I think you, know, you start with, as we call it, friends, family, coalition of the willing. <laughs> but that's, how far, that's where you start. Yep. After that, you've got to perform and sell. And a lot of people will never give you money until they see three-year track record, five-year track record. Mm. This is a long game. But the real decision to you know, pull the trigger was actually seeing the success of Hamish and Magellan and thinking, you know what, I'm not going to be Hamish. I'm probably, there's probably only one Hamish. Mm. But it, it means there's a chance that if you can build a business that you don't have to be a fund manager to be a fund manager. Yeah, it can... You can grow into it. Global funds can be done. Correct. Yep. And global funds can be done from Australia too. Yeah, absolutely. So I look up to Hamish and Chris uh, incredibly. I think they've done a fantastic job. Mm. But there's room for there's room for others. There's room for a couple more, or at least yeah. one more. Um, like all businesses, uh, any early learnings? Oh, oh where do we start? <laughs> you know, you've got to go through the valley of death, right? Mm. In all of small business, first of all, all your assumptions are wrong. All, all your revenue assumptions are wrong, they're too, too uh, optimistic, all your cost assumptions are too uh, optimistic. Yeah, and, you know, you just start digging a big hole. I think that happens pretty much in all small businesses that you, you, under, you completely mess up the first year or so. I think you've got to go through that valley of death to know how much you want it, mm. right? And when you come out the other side, it's a, it's a really good thing that you've been through. If you've just been a, like a, a tech unicorn and had billions thrown at you to blow up, it's a different game. Here's a billion, doesn't matter, there's another billion. Well, when it's your own money and you're digging holes, it's it's much tougher. But it, it really tests if you want it. And well, my first year or so was a debacle, uh, uh, not a performance debacle, but a debacle. You know, you just, you know, there's people you thought would give you money, didn't give you money. There's like, you know, you've hired, a, you made a few hiring mistakes. You just you just totally lose your confidence. Like, you're just not sure. What, why don't why you go, I've gone from this just easy job where I write notes and get mm. paid well to digging this hole. Like, what am I doing? Mm. And, but right, you know, now we have a, a good business and 
you know, I really enjoy it now. But you've got to go through, that, as I said, that valley of death. And I made a, a, a relentless amount of mistakes in that first year. Unfortunately, none of, fortunately, none of them were terminal. I, uh, like all small business owners, I, I can certainly understand where you're coming from. There's more than a few inward-looking moments. Um, okay, let's zoom out a bit and take the 30,000-foot view. Yep. With the way you invest and in, in the fund today, why do you invest the way you do and what's your objective? Objective is, you know, to generate sort of 10% returns per annum, just compounding, right? So that's my objective. Make money in a quiet way, grind it out, don't take, take spectacular risk, grow and compound, compound and grow, compound and grow. My, when I want to look at the portfolio, I want to see the best companies in the world. It's as simple as that. Mm. I just want to see no shit in there. <laughs> I'm allowed to swear on a podcast, am I? Yep, yeah. It's just, when I look at that, you know, people have been good enough to give me their hard-earned money. I want to look at that portfolio and say, we have found what I consider the best companies in the world at reasonable prices. We're not going to pay you know, ridiculous multiples for some company, but we will get pound for pound the best companies in the world and some in Australia too that are great companies. So to me, everything's about duration. You know, the best thing you can ever learn, you can teach a child, it's probably a question for later, is the power of compound interest and compounding. It really is. Mm. So you don't have to take crazy risks and buy the riskiest stock or the latest thing or the biggest fad. Many of the greatest businesses just keep compounding. They just keep growing and growing and growing because they've got huge addressable markets, great management, and it's almost they just see off their competitors. So when I look at the portfolio, I look for that. I want to have the best companies in the world in there. And that sounds an arrogant comment, but it's not. You can, you can grind out very good returns with, without taking crazy, crazy risks in new things or whatever. Can you give us an example of something? Yeah, I think like, you know, I mean, I think, you know, something like in, in Asia would be Tencent. You know, the, the Asian or Chinese leader in telecommunications, internet, you know, messaging, pay, pay, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a 400 billion market cap stock trading on about 27 times earnings, growing at 30%. Now, you can go and buy all the afterpays of the world or wise techs in Australia, and they may well be great ideas. But, you know, you're paying 100 times future revenue for those. Mm-hmm. Now, they may well be worth it. I don't know. But I do know Tencent will dominate its space for the next 20 years and will probably be the biggest company in Asia. So that, I can buy good growth at a reasonable price in a company that trades hundreds of billions, hundreds of millions of dollars a day. The other thing I pay a lot of attention to, Owen, is liquidity. If we're wrong and we do get stuff wrong, I want to be able to go. Yeah. So I want liquid, big, great companies in the portfolio. But I think, you know, what's changed in time is that, you know, time is your friend. You know, the, the world trades on, these markets trade on every tweet from Donald Trump or every reaction from China or every something, you know, something going on in Canberra today. I mean, it's meaningless. Would that have affected the profitability of any of the companies in our portfolio? No, on a daily basis, not at all. Does it affect their share prices? Yes, in the very short term. But if we can time arbitrage that and have long-term investors with us in the best companies we can find in the world, time is our friend. That's how you make money. And so that's probably the overview. I want to own the best companies in the world across a, uh, a variety of jurisdictions, and I'm not scared of having emerging markets either, if there's a great company in emerging markets. Hey, great. Uh, I heard you mention uh, something called the Herald Effect, and I note that it, it's something to do with, the, I suppose, an informational advantage um, or an investor's access to information. Do you believe that the informational advantage can be obtained or an informational advantage can be obtained in the market today? No, not really. I think when I first started 20 years ago, there was a huge institutional advantage in, firstly, information. You got it quicker than the the man in the street, Mm -hmm. the herald reader, as we call them. 
And what used to happen is, say, you know, XYZ had a profit warning one day, it'd be down 5%, then it'd be down another 10% the next day when the Herald readers read it and reacted by selling their shares. Nowadays, I'd call it the Twitter effect. Everyone has the same information at the same time. There is, and now, it's information. It doesn't mean it's going to make you money or not make you money. It is a totally level playing field in information driven by the Apple iPhone and Samsung products. Everyone has the same information at the same time and continuous disclosure. Plus, no company will... You know, I, I think in the olden days, companies sort of had favoured analysts and favoured fund managers mm. who they gave information that probably ahead of other people or above other people. That absolutely does not happen now. You know, you'll go to jail if you do mm. that. So continuous disclosure plus Twitter, Facebook, social media, instant news, 24-hour news cycle means to me all information, everyone's got the same information at the same time. What they don't have is the same conviction or the same time frames. Mm. Remember the share market is just an ongoing auction. It's an auction every day of, of, of the same pieces of paper. Some people are traders, some people are high-frequency traders, other people are investors. Well, the biggest advantage you have in a market that is high-frequency trading and instant information is being an investor. Actually being able to right-size your portfolio to handle a bit of volatility in the short term in stocks, in it, but then ride it out because you know that the, earning, the earnings trend is mm. up. So I think that's totally changed. I do not think I have got any information edge on anyone. I've got a conviction edge and I've got a visualising the future edge. Mm. I mean, that's what I've got to try and do is visualise what the world looks like in three years, what products and services you know, people are going to be using and what does the world look like. And that is what, if I've, if I've got any edge, it's trying to visualise that and then build a portfolio to that. But dealing in the present, you know, who's going to be the Prime Minister of Australia? Can't make money out of that, you know. Yeah. No, that's great. It's um, a great take on, I suppose, the behavioural edge and, and having that temperament to invest long term. Um, can you explain to me and, and listeners uh, how the AIM portfolio takes advantage of long-term growth opportunities? And there's a word that you, a phrase that you use often, which is structured growth. Yeah. Can you explain what you mean by structured and how the team identifies those opportunities? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I term it, you know, structural growth, it's trying to differentiate from cyclical growth. I mean, you know, cyclical growth can be like a home builder or, you know, a retailer or something that can be quite cyclical. Mm-hmm. Structural growth, I suppose, is something like an Amazon that is just growing and growing and taking more and more and more share, but also empowered by a structural change, the fact that everyone, that everyone has mobile data and mm. everyone can shop from their phone. Okay. So to me, it's a structural change where you go and find the one or two best stocks in the world with the most leverage to that structural change. They may be part of it, it may be driven by an advance in a different technology that drives their business. But to me, structural growth is the opposite of cyclical growth. It is, a, it is sort of like compound interest, that your company's growing at 8 to 10% per annum because you're just grinding it out, you're raising prices, you're running your business better, but there's growing demand for your product. So there's sort of GDP multiplier stocks. If GDP is growing at 3%, well, we want these things to be growing at 9 because they're just compounding whatever growth is out there. You usually find those in consumer-facing, sorry, usually find those in consumer-facing sectors mm-hmm. where, or technology-based sectors or both. So structural, structural growth is, you know, it's not... It's never cheap. We're not the first people to find it, you know, but if something's growing at 20%, there's nothing wrong with paying 20 times earnings for it because you're just paying a peg price to growth ratio of one. So I'd describe it as something that is compounding okay. and likely to keep compounding in terms of demand for that product or service. Yeah, it sounds great. Um, when So when you find these opportunities, how do you value them? And I suppose this the GARP growth, growth at a reasonable price, or yeah. would you liken your 
particular investment process and philosophy more to that of a value yeah. investor or Look, growth investor? No, not no, not a value investor. I think value investing can trap you into buying things that are cheap, but cheap for a reason. Mm-hmm. I've got no problem with buying cheap stocks, but sometimes the cheapest stocks are the best stocks. You know, a lot of things are cheap for a reason that they've got structural headwinds or they're just, they're, they're not growing. Mm. I believe the biggest money you make in investing is buying companies that grow, that grow their earnings, grow their dividends, and just keep growing. Now, you've got to make sure you don't overpay for that. And at the moment in markets, there's an element of pretty high pricing mm. for growth stocks. And the outperformance of growth stocks versus value stocks has been enormous, as we well know. But the funny thing is, the growth stocks don't over- offer much value, and the value stocks offer no growth. Mm. You know, so there's not much in between. I sort of understand why that's happened. But for me, you know, we all have a mixture of things in the portfolio. I'm not scared of having something that's cheap or something that's on 10 times earnings. If I can see a pathway to it going to 15 times earnings over the next three years, if there's some change in the cycle or some change in its product. But to me, we are sort of, I would say it's fair to call us growth at a reasonable price investors. I'm happy to be a price to growth investor. I think that's how you make money. Mm. Anyone I've studied in the world who's been good at this is generally on that way of doing things buying structurally growing companies at reasonable prices, knowing that the biggest fallacy in, when I was in stockbroking used to annoy me so much. The analysts would say, say the market was on 15 times earnings. Analysts would say a stock's expensive on 17 times. You go, well, that's just rubbish. That's like mm. saying everyone's house in, in the same street should be worth the same amount. That's rubbish. Some may have views of the harbour. Some might have a pool. One might have a tennis court. It's ridiculous. There's simply not all companies were created equal. Mm. And... and that, therefore, paying 17 to 20 times for something that's going to compound at 20%, no problem at all. So, to me, yeah, we are growth. We're not growth at any price investors. We're growth at a reasonable price investor. But we will do opportunist things too. I'm never going to pencil myself into a corner. I don't paint myself into a corner. Mm. And I think by describing yourself as value, growth, quant, hedge fund, God knows what, you know, you do paint yourself into a corner. I want to be able to do whatever I have to you know, even if I have to slightly change style because the markets change or a cycle changes to make my investors money. Okay, that's great. And I think that leads us into the next point quite well is uh, the fund and yourself can take short positions, I believe. Yep. Um, and some of them seem very interesting. Can you explain, I suppose, just in a general sense, what shorting is and how you do it and, and what particularly you're looking for? Yeah, it's it's a dark science. and I'm, I'm, It's sort of against my natural capitalist position. Mm. You know, the vast bulk of shorts we do are in index futures to protect the portfolio from an okay. index fall. So I'm always happy. The last thing I want to do is sell things I think are great investments because I'm worried about the market. If the market's a bit high or the market's had a good run. So the last thing I want to do is sell a Google or sell a Tencent or, you know, because I think the market's going to fall 5%. And by the way, that may not work either. Google or Tencent might go up. You know, you, so the vast bulk of protection we take is in in shorting is in physical index futures. Okay. So if the index falls, we will make money on being short those. Individual shorting of stocks is a terrible risk-reward um, proposition. The most you can make is 99%. The most you can lose is infinite. Mm. It's an expensive business too. You've got to pay to borrow the stock. You've got to pay away dividends. You've got to pay away franking credits if you're shorting in Australia. So I think very few people are good at it. I am not good at it either. We occasionally do it at a stock-specific level if we think there's a clear catalyst to you know, make 20 or 30% of stock falling. So we sell the stock short. If it falls, we, we make a profit on yep. the fall. But I don't want anyone to think that I'm some great stock shorter. It's not a big part of what we do. The biggest, of, the best defensive asset you can have in your portfolio if you're worried about markets is actually cash. Because shorts are risk. Shorts can go up. Shorts can rip your face off. 
We've seen a bit of that in Australia recently, actually. Mm. There's been some nasty, nasty short squeezes. And, and in Tesla in America, things like that. Yeah. Really nasty short squeezes. So I think, look, I could see myself having no shorts in the portfolio. Okay. Yeah, I just, I think, you know, I just feel that it's, it's so hard to make money shorting, particularly in the world that's growing at the moment and the markets are still going up. There'll be a time and a place where we may have some more shorts, but I just prefer to, if I'm taking protection against the market, I will use the market, I index futures, as the protection. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. The, the AIM High Conviction Fund has been up and running for a while now and seems to be off to a good start. I mean, the China-USA thing's been a bit um, turbulent in the, in the last few months, but uh, I noticed you made it possible for smaller investors to get on board. Um, so I'm curious to know how, how big you think you can, can grow the fund or grow, grow the business, given the opportunity set in front of you. It's a bit chicken and egg, aren't it? Like, you know, you can have all these dreams about being you know, a multi-billion dollar fund, but if you don't perform, you're not getting there. Mm. So I've got to make sure that the performance is good and reliable and consistent. Like, it's quite funny. These funds management businesses are sort of a manufacturing business and a distribution business. Mm. You've got to manufacture good, consistent numbers and low volatility in great companies around the world, and then you've got to sell it. So you've got to distribute it to people who may mm. want to give you money. And you've got to be investable as possible. So we're in the process now of actually making ourselves more investable, going through ratings agencies and changing REs and things like that. And we'll have a full retail product in probably six months' time. At the moment, we're basically a, a wholesale investment fund yep. for sophisticated investors, but we'll get to that through time. Okay. Yeah, so we do, yes, we do have a retail feeder fund, but we're getting to the getting to the point of doing it properly and becoming you know, more investable. But you never want to take your eye off performance. At the end of the day, if people want to invest with you, it'll be because of the consistency of your performance mm. and the fact you're doing things that they can't do easily themselves, which is global equities, which is finding you know the best growth stocks in the world to themes I think are structural, occasionally protecting ourselves from the market, occasionally you know hedging currency or not hedging currency, all the things that individual investors find difficult from Australia. You know, through time zone or lack of knowledge or whatever, and I think there is a good case for diversity. You know, absolutely. Obviously, you know, the Australians are very well exposed to Australia, and I think there is a genuine case for for diversifying, continuing to diversify for that over the next you know five or ten years. Mm. So, how just just on that, how would you, if you were speaking directly to an investor, how would you say the the AIM fund and portfolio fits in their overall asset allocation? Yeah, well, I, know, I always say that. When you get a Commonwealth Bank or Telstra dividend, just assuming it's a self-managed super fund, they all own the Commonwealth Bank, they all own Telstra or BHP, do you need to buy more BHP or Telstra or, or, or Commonwealth Bank in the DRP? Well, the answer is no. I always think Australia for income, global for growth, and I still think that. Australia, mm-hmm. duopoly, monopoly structures, low growth, high dividend payouts, the, value, the advantage of franking credits, hopefully still, if there's even a change of government or whatever happens, mm-hmm. we'll see about that. But Australia for income, rest of the world for growth. So if you get a dividend from the Commonwealth Bank, et cetera, well, perhaps give it to me. I'll go and diversify. You don't need any more Commonwealth Bank mm. shares. You've got enough of those. I mean, if you've got Australian banks and you know, Australian retailers and Australian property trusts and you own a house and you have a mortgage from an Australian bank, you've got one almighty play on Australian property. One, or, one almighty one, which has worked really well, but may not work every year. Mm. So <laughs> I would say think about if you don't need the dividends to live on from your Australian portfolio, reallocate them to a global manager. It doesn't have to be me, but I think that's a sensible allocation. Absolutely. Uh, I notice in the portfolio at the moment there's significant exposure to technology and emerging markets. Yep. Is that something investors can expect to see going forward? Yeah, look, I think, I think the combination of population growth, young population empowered by 
empowered by uh, mobile devices with basically monopolies in things like Tencent and Alibaba uh, are just wonderful investments. Mm. Yes, they've been knocked around a bit lately on emerging markets and a strong US dollar and inverted commas trade wars. But at the end of the day, these are the best businesses on earth, I reckon. Mm. I think Alibaba and Tencent will be possibly the two biggest companies in the world. They'll catch up to Apple through time because they've got bigger addressable markets, mm. faster growth, and no competition. And you know, no offence to our good friends at Apple, at the end of the day, they're really a device company. They've got to keep selling devices. These are networks and platforms, and platforms are, you know, have no boundaries, in my view. So, yes, I think where technology and population collide is where you want to invest. We will, I, you know, I'm not a technological, technological denier, or, but I also will not pay any price for a tech stock. Mm. And I think in Australia there's some quite wildly priced tech stocks at the moment because there's so little growth here that people get a little bit carried away mm. with what is technology. You know, so I think it won't just be in Asia too. Look, we own some you know, US large cap franchises as well in technology. I think you know, buying Alphabet, which owns Google and YouTube on 20 times, 22 times earnings is cheap. Yeah. You know, like it, that is not expensive. So people will talk about the fangs. Certain part of the fangs are expensive, but not all of them. Mm. You know, so just sensible, great businesses that are grinding it out, taking greater and greater share. But where you see population growth as well, I think, I think there's a great opportunity in Asia right now. I mean, the Samsungs, the Tencents, the Alibabas, the Baidus, I think they're, they're cheap, really cheap. And they've had everything thrown, including an emerging market, you know, exodus that we haven't seen for like 10 years. And I think there's great value in some of those stocks and their, their growth profiles haven't changed. Mm. So you can expect the volatility, but the potential reward is there. You know what, I think down here, I think, you know, they've been hit so hard that I think the volatility, it's starting to stabilise now, quite mm. frankly. I mean, I, the hardest thing in running money is taking more than a one, one day view. You know, if I sit here and, you know, we can talk about having a three year, five year horizon, you just average into these things, you don't have to buy them all in one day, but you know in three or five years that if they're not worth more, we've got a problem. Like the world's got a problem. Because China's stopped growing, the Chinese population's not using these things, Asia's not growing. Well, if Asia's not growing, America, you know, Wall Street won't be at all time highs, there's no mm. doubt about that. And so I think at these prices, everything is about, you know, everything about, everything about investing is about the margin of safety. I think in Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, Samsung, those sort of things right now, there's a big margin of safety. You've been paid to take the risk. And I also think that's the same in things like European banks. We're on nine times earnings and 5% dividend yields out of 50% payout ratios at the bottom of the interest rate cycle. You're getting paid to take the risk. Mm. Do I think ING bounces back tomorrow? Not necessarily. But do I think it's stupidly cheap? Yeah, I do. Mm. You know, so there's, there's opportunities in the world to buy things that pay you to take the risk. And that, that, that helps you sleep at night if you've got the right entry price. Okay, last question, Charlie. That's my favourite. If you could go back and, and tell a... Tell a younger Charlie something, just one thing about investing, what would it be? The power of compounding. I said it before in the interview, just the power of compound interest. Tell them, tell them how compound interest works. Mm. The other thing is, that, you know, I think the best ideas you see with your own eyes in everyday life. I truly believe that. That You know, Peter Lynch, who ran the Fidelity Magellan Fund, basically wrote that. I've believed that through my whole career. Mm. I mean, if you think about the last 10 years, if you'd simply bought the companies that sell you the products you use in daily life, Apple, you know, Amazon, Samsung, Facebook, 10, you, know, you have just absolutely killed it. If you'd avoided the stocks, you and Netflix, I suppose, if you'd avoided the stocks that you hadn't been using like free-to-air TV, Telstra, <laughs> you know, the list goes on, you would have absolutely brained it. I think, so two things, 
compound interest is the basic economic you know, mm -hmm. theory that you teach them, yep. but also the best ideas you see with your own eyes in everyday life, because they are the products and services that everyone is using. And if I'm right, and no one has an information advantage, if you and your friends start you know, using Facebook or Apple iPhones or Afterpay or whatever it's been, you've got an advantage, mm. because you know you're using the product. And the share market is six months behind in telling you about profits and revenue and et cetera. So I'll say it again, the best ideas you see in your own eyes in everyday life, and that's why I travel a lot, that's why I'm in Asia a lot, trying to, trying to see what they're using and try and replicate a portfolio that, that replicates that. The other thing I say, because there may be some you know, grandparents on the, on, on, the, on, the, um, on the podcast, look at your children, look at the products and services your children and grandchildren are using. They are the stocks you want to own. And if you thought about what they use, that is actually, again, would have been a wonderful portfolio and will continue to be a wonderful portfolio because it's the younger generations that are driving growth in everything. And they're not great savers, they're good spenders. <laughs> so look, you know, look, I, if I had my time again, I wish I knew a bit more about compound interest. I think the third point is, and the final point is, and everyone says this, but no one does it, let your winners run, cut your losers. We've all, we're always, you know, you get a lot wrong. But if you can limit the damage in your losers and reinvest into things that are winning, you will win. It's much, it's, it's psychologically hard because the natural temptation is to sell a winner because it's gone up and let your loser run because mm -hmm. it's going to get back to the price you paid for it. Well, it's probably not. So we all, doesn't matter how much money you look after as a fund or how rich you are or how, how much money you got, we all have a limited amount of capital. And that capital, my philosophy is, should be working as hard as possible all of the time in the best companies in the world. So hopefully we can try and keep doing that, but it's easier said than done. That's great advice, and um, I wish you all the best of luck with, uh, with AIM and, and the future. Thanks, Owen. It's been nice talking to you. Yeah, Thank pleasure. you. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.